You are listening to Taking Up Space. CFUV 101.9 FM's intersectional feminist podcast broadcasting from Victoria. We acknowledge with respect the Lekwungen and Sanchothan-speaking peoples on whose traditional territory this podcast was produced, and the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Wasanich peoples whose historical relationships with the land continue to this day. Welcome back to Taking Up Space and to part two in our series highlighting the podcasting talents of Gender 200. I think this is an episode that is really important to end off our season three with because the topics that you are about to hear in these episodes touch on things that we are experiencing in real time. Things like coronavirus and police brutality. And what's even more important is the fact that these are are not new things to our worlds, but you are about to hear them through the lens of young people, a really fresh perspective that they're bringing to the table. And I'm really excited for you to hear the rest of the episodes, so we're going to get into it. The first episode that you are about to hear is from the group members Kate, Ginny, Michelle, Olivia, and Cassie. This group takes a look at big trending topics like Donald Trump, the current pandemic, a potential World War III, and analyzes and compares them through the lens of racism as well as discusses the role social media plays in glorifying them. Here it is. World War III is beginning to trend on social media, and the U.S. killing of Iran's general Qassem Soleimani has brought tensions in the Middle East to a new to level. The extreme measures. The question a lot of people are asking, operate. although a lot of people think they have the answer, is: Is the president a racist? When you eat bats and bamboo rats and and call it a delicacy, why y'all be acting so surprised when diseases like hashtag coronavirus appear? This is a meme that I read that is currently circulating Twitter, and it shows a video of a lady eating a bat with chopsticks. It has 9,000 views and 10,000 retweets. One of the top comments reads, The most disgusting people with no damn culture expect to eat every other freaking animal they see. They deserve the type of viruses karma brings them. It's so crazy that something so racist can be so popular. Wow. What? Why do some people even find this funny? Social media and humor have the ability to delegitimize, deprecate, and dismiss serious issues, such as the possibility for a war between Iran and the U.S. Yeah, exactly. When we were researching our topic, we realized that social media tells a story of racism and normalizes it in a particular way. So we put our phones down and went into the world to hear real-life stories, or the other side, to further analyze the difference between racism on social media and racism in reality. What we're really hoping for as a viewer, you can become more aware of things like this online and how they're portrayed to those around you. And also just the next time you see a racist meme or comment online, you can really take a step back and critically think about the meaning behind these comments and that the humor behind these memes and online comments is actually not humor at all and it's really offensive to certain minorities and groups. We hope you may change your perspective in which you are more aware of the impact that social media memes have concerning racial issues. The online world is a source for systematic racism and it's time to address it. 
And, you know, we are the ones who carry out this analysis. And that's because we're a diverse group filled with multiple backgrounds and racial profiles who are passionate about our topics. As racial injustices have been showcased and fought for throughout history, some people may assume racism is becoming less prevalent, but, like, that's not necessarily true. Like, I believe it is just becoming more passive and hidden through social media contents. Like, for example, through a meme. To elaborate, memes in some cases can display what seem to be subliminal messages, implanting racist messages into a viewer's mind, while not explicitly coming off as racist. Viewers may laugh at such memes lightheartedly. However, this only enforces the racist stereotypes and jokes people elicit in our 21st century. They are silently advocating for racism by supporting such memes, without even being consciously aware of it. We chose this topic because we want to bring it to conscious awareness. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Another point I just wanted to bring up as well is that humor is also a really important coping mechanism for a lot of people, and it can be used to get through traumatizing events. That being said, though, there are appropriate times and non-appropriate times. There's a time and place for everything, you know? Yeah, so to start, we wanted to look at the different ways racism is portrayed online versus how they are portrayed offline. Juha Rudanpa, a geographer from the University of Ulu, wrote an article on humor and social media. Here's an interesting quote we pulled from the article. Although humor is generally associated with innocent amusement, in the case of crisis events, it has various psychological, social, and politically charged effects, both negative and positive. In times of crisis, humor functions as a technique for neutralizing emotionally charged areas, and by that means provides hope. On the other hand, in contemporary society, there exist sensitive, socially restricted, and culturally dependent boundaries beyond which humor is not permitted to extend. This above quote really shows the mass impact that social media has on our society. And without these platforms that we almost all have access to, racist jokes like this are a lot harder to implement. And with social media, everything is so easy and accessible and almost everyone is on it. And it plays such a large role in our lives. And because of that, it has such an impact on our everyday lives. Yeah, not only that, but due to the fact that social media plays a significant role in our society, it becomes easier to be discriminative behind the screen without facing any repercussions. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok have become key platforms that host and perpetuate racism. We also want to consider a possible influence that may add to the racism breeding ground in our day and age. We think a key contributor to the inflating racist rhetoric is Donald Trump. When Obama was elected, a lot of people were talking about a post-racial country. A black president had been elected for the first time and then re-elected four years later. While Obama's presidency was a meaningful mark of true progress, racism really never went away. A black president cannot reverse centuries of racial injustice. And even during his presidency, racist remarks were made to and about Obama. According to an article by Edwards and Ruchin, since Donald Trump has been elected, hate crimes have been on the rise. White supremacists have been emboldened and anti-immigrant views have intensified. Yeah, having a world leader, especially the president of the United States, being openly racist really perpetuates racism. The president quoted here, why are we having all these people from shithole countries, quote, bleephole countries, blank countries, using an expletive, s-hole countries, vulgar language, expletive countries, not racial, not racially charged, racist. 
Trump's discrimination on social media is a perfect example on how racism is made out to be online, glamorized and humorized. Not only is Donald Trump racist on social media, but his discriminative mindset is affecting hundreds of thousands of people on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, like, think of all the little, or honestly, the big comments that have been blatantly racist. What Donald Trump's tweets really do is normalize racism, and it majorly contributes to this culture where it's made common to laugh at these things. Does anyone have any relevant examples? Well, a particular series of tweets that stuck out to me. Donald Trump tweeted on July 14th, 2019, So interesting to see, quote-unquote, progressive, Democrat congresswoman who originally came from countries whose governments are a complete and total catastrophe. The worst, most corrupt and inept anywhere in the world, in brackets, if they even have a functioning government at all. Now loudly and viciously telling the people of the United States, the greatest and most powerful nation on earth, how our government is to be run. Why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime infested places from which they came? Then come back and show us how it is done. These places need your help badly. You can't leave fast enough. I'm sure that Nancy Pelosi would be very happy to quickly work out free travel arrangements. With these tweets, Donald Trump exhorted four new Democratic members of Congress to go back to the corrupt countries he said they are from. Tell me that's not racist. Not only is Donald Trump racist on social media, but his discriminative mindset is affecting hundreds of thousands of people on a day-to-day basis outside of technology. Another way of mobilizing racism online is through the use of memes. Yeah, for those of you who don't know what a meme is, it can take all ranges, but it is usually a humorous picture, video, or text that is copied and then originally captioned, which is then shared rapidly by users. As you can imagine and have probably actually witnessed, some of these memes can be taken out of context and are often extremely offensive. Here's a meme I found on Twitter. It reads, since the U.S. is such an oppressive country, shouldn't we be warning immigrants not to come here? At some point, we took a step back and realized that these memes were not about us, and we realized that we are extremely privileged not to be the targets. On the other hand, me, coming from a full Persian background, I had to take a break from the internet because I was the subject of memes when World War III jokes were on the rise. There's actually a viral image going around right now on Twitter that reads, No Chinese Allowed, in red Chinese lettering outside of a seafood restaurant in Seoul, Korea. People may deny that this is actually happening, but I experienced something similar when I went to a local Chinese restaurant in Victoria. There's this restaurant right down the street from my house that I often go to, and last week a friend and I went out for dinner, and when we went in, it was completely empty. A lady approached us to serve us and thanked us for coming in. She said that business had been dead lately due to coronavirus, and people don't want to come in because it's a Chinese food place. Yeah, like one of my best friend's dad works for a packaging company in richmond on the mainland before social distancing isolation and quarantining became a thing he was mentioning how his manager has ordered all people of the asian race to take a paid vacation for at least two weeks some of these employees have lived in canada their whole lives and haven't traveled to asia in years these stories really open up my eyes and just because i don't experience it on a first-hand basis doesn't mean it doesn't exist I am extremely privileged that my work, school, or way of life isn't at the mercy of racist individuals. In addition to our first-hand experiences, we reached out into the world and interviewed other people to widen our perspectives and views on how racism affects people differently. Yeah, I have a friend who has expressed her frustrations numerous times about the racism that comes along with the coronavirus publicly on social media. So I've asked her if we could ask her a few questions, and she agreed. 
So here's a phone call I had earlier this week with Susan Lee. Hi, Susan. Thanks for agreeing to do this interview. Can you introduce yourself? Um, hi, my name is Susan Lee. I'm 19 years old and I'm a Chinese Canadian, which means I grew up in a very international background. I speak Chinese at home with my parents and then English with my friends and just like outside my house. Right. All right. Right. And what are your thoughts on the rise of the coronavirus and the racism that comes along with it? Um, at the beginning of the outbreak, the racism wasn't that obvious because not many people, I believe, in our society had awareness of it because it didn't really affect us. And once it get very, like, the coronavirus got very serious and, like, it spread across, like, global, I, like, really noticed that, like, the racism started appealing. Like, people on the internet will, like, like, for example, on TikTok, people will make jokes how, like, it's, like, the Chinese virus, how it's, like, all Chinese people's fault. But it's, like, you shouldn't blame a virus on a nation. And, like, on the bus, if you cough and you're Asian, I feel like people will kind of, like, walk away from you, which is kind of hurtful because sometimes even I'm just not coughing, I'm just, like, on the bus or, like, on, like, public places. Like, you feel like people are, like, walking away from you because you're Asian. Right. So... Yeah. Do you feel comfortable enough speaking up when you witness this racism? Well, I never really spoken up. Like, just 10 minutes ago, somebody I know on Instagram, let me read the post, posted, a, like, a post on his story saying how, like, isn't it time for us to refer COVID-19 as the Chinese Communist Party, like, coronavirus, as for that how, like, Chinese people hide the virus from people for a couple months and now, like, feed us with all, like, disinformation, which is, like, really racist because, like, I know this guy, like, he's my friend in real life, but, like, if he's, like, putting that information online it make me feel like he's like attacking me as well but I never like really like I won't call him out on it because I don't really have much to say mm-hmm. yeah it's just like it's kind of hurtful but it's not enough for you to like say speak up about it because like it like technically didn't really affect me mm-hmm. that's terrible though I'm sorry so as people who are not experiencing this discrimination, what can we do to end the stigma surrounding this issue? I think people need to like stop making like jokes on the internet, such as like TikTok, for an example. Mm-hmm. And then I think people need to raise the awareness of like not just Chinese people are spreading this virus. It has nothing to, nothing to do with me because like I wasn't even in China. But because it was like came from the outbreak came from China, like I'm receiving like criticism from it and it's unfair. Yeah. Um, all right, well, thank you so much for your time. I believe Olivia also has another interview she'd like to share with us. Here's a short interview clip I did with Nigel. He's my friend that was just on exchange in France at Sciences Po. Um, and he wanted to talk about his experience as a Filipino Canadian um, during the coronavirus outbreak. So I was in the line with my friend and I coughed once. And I was just given the most awful looks by all these people around me. Like they're all wearing like full face masks and everything just glaring at me. It was really intimidating. <laughs> In terms of what we were discussing and how people are um, especially suspicious of the Asian community, I had another friend um, in Rice, which is like 
northeast of Paris, um, who is Asian, and she has asthma. So she was in a lecture and she coughed, and one of her peers um, like heard her cough and just started crying, like out of fear, basically of of uh, my friend who's Asian. Wow. Um, and she went up to the professor and like basically complained about um, this girl in the class who might be sick. Um, so uh, that was yeah very dramatic and like sort of targeting her Seems because of racially her, driven. Um, yeah. Have you seen any um, racially driven coronavirus memes and what are your thoughts on them? Yes. I mean, like, obviously there's a ton out there, so it's hard to, like, make really specific comments because um, it's just, like, mm-hmm. a really broad range of things. Uh, what first comes to mind for me would be one dude eating a bat has caused the entire world to shut down, which is tough that there's one specific race that's blamed for this outbreak because obviously it's like not an intentional thing by any means mm-hmm. and it doesn't seem totally just to um like make the assumptions that there was intentionality or whatever behind it exactly yeah during the coronavirus outbreak have you directly experienced any racism i was in nice we were basically just like walking down the street um, it was like a pretty busy um, area, and this was like sort of before Corona was like a really harsh reality for everyone. Um, and basically, we were just walking along, and this man comes up to me and yells, uh, "Monkey face!" right at me, and I wow. was shocked, and I didn't know what to do, so I just walked away. That's horrible. I'm sorry that you had to experience that. Yeah, I don't let it get to me. Well, so, thank you so much for sharing these experiences with us. Yeah, no problem. As racial justice advocates, we feel it is our job to help spread awareness on these issues because they've always been apparent in our society. Researching our topic in depth and hearing personal experiences has been really eye-opening. Our generation is so dependent on the media, which is why we need to spread awareness on topics like this to show how racism has been manifested into a variety of the content we see on social media. We hope our audience can use this information in the future and understand both sides to this pandemic. The question that I'm left with is, what can we each do individually going forward outside of this project to really continue work on the topic? Yeah, like a question that I have is how can we be active and be helpful allies while online when we see racism on social media? Is our work on this topic going to be effective in changing people's perspective on racially driven memes as there's something that are overwhelmingly perceived as lighthearted? All right, that is all for today. Stay safe, everyone. Enjoy your time in quarantine and be sure to wash your hands. Thank you for listening. The next group, Molly, Rachel, Megan, and Julia, compare and contrast the case of Cindy Gladu, an indigenous sex worker who was murdered in June of 2011, with the sex tape and following success of Kim Kardashian, with the goal of studying the nuance within sex, sexuality, and privilege, and the intersection between the two women's stories. 
Hello and welcome to the Sexy Sexuality Podcast, where we talk about sex, sexuality, and other sexy topics. Today we'll be talking about sexuality, so let's dive right in. In this podcast, we'll be discussing which bodies are entitled to use their sexuality for monetary gain and which bodies face social backlash and violence. In order to discuss this, we'll be talking about the murder of Cindy Gladue, an Indigenous sex worker. This is a disclaimer that on today's episode, there will be some graphic information about a sexualized murder and some violent language. Act 1. The Kardashians. How many Kardashians can you name? Chloe, Kimmy, <laughs> Courtney, uh, Kylie, Kendall, Kylie Jenner and Kendall Jenner, and then mm-hmm. Bru- uh, Caitlyn Jenner, uh, the other dude, Kanye, does Kanye count? Does Kanye West count? Because he's like her husband, <laughs> right? We have Kim, one and only. Uh, we have Chris, Mama Chris. We have Chloe. We have Courtney, who wishes she was Kim. Yeah, and then there's like, you know, the people that like latched on to it. So like Kanye, yeah. but yeah, I don't think he took the last name. Why do you think the Kardashians are famous? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is butt. I think uh, they have a lot going for them. I think um, they have a lot uh, physically going on. They have a reality TV show. I think Instagram also. I think that, you know, it may or may not have to do with uh, a, a certain tape that, that Miss Kim was involved in. Uh, Kylie Jenner got into a fight with an egg once, so maybe that's why. I think part of why Kim Kardashian was able to kind of gain fame through her sex tape was because her sex tape was really just scandalous enough that it garnered attention, but it wasn't so deviant and kinky that it completely tarnished her image. Yeah, I think the three main things that really helped Kim be able to make a career beyond her sex tape was her racial ambiguity, her wealth pre-sex tape, and how, like you said, the sex tape itself was privileged sex. So for the listeners who are new to this topic, I'll just quickly define what privilege means for the purposes of our podcast. So we're using privilege to, in terms of what is condoned and celebrated within society versus what is punished and seen as taboo or deviant. Yeah, I think she just fit into those very kind of heteronormative uh, gender roles, right? Like even throughout the sex tape, she's kind of going back and talking to him and is doing so in a way where she's almost like gaining uh, permission from him to be in the sex tape. And so it is deviant in the fact that she made a sex tape, but it's not so deviant that she gets uh, socially condemned for it. Yeah, I think that privileged sex is a really important way to phrase it because that really like calls upon Ruben's charm circle, which to my understanding basically talks about what kinds of sex are like allowed to exist and not be seen as deviant. Yeah. So for example, like the Kardashian sex type, it was very vanilla sex. It was bodies only. They were in a monogamous relationship, which was kind of emphasized throughout the sex tape and the way that she talked to Ray J. And I think most importantly for the purposes of this conversation is that Kim was not being paid for sex. I think where Kim's situation kind of deviates away from the charm circle is that because she was so wealthy and because she had like access to like famous people in Calabasas and stuff, she was able to launch her own TV show and really control her narrative and go on things like The Tyra Show and sort of position herself as like a family woman outside of just the sex tape. Yeah, and I think it's important, too, to note that the sex tape really 
came before her show, right? Like up until um, Keeping Up with the Kardashians kind of came along, Kim Kardashian was really not super popular. Yeah, like I think that is really important to note because the sex tape was leaked in February 2007 and then Keeping Up with the Kardashians started in October of 2007. So quite a few months later, like she definitely got clout from the sex tape. You know, keeping that in mind, as soon as that show came along, she was able to broadcast her sexuality in a much more controlled way. She was able to kind of take ownership of what she wanted to do and what she didn't want to do. And so an example of that would be the Playboy photo shoot that she was in, where she stated that you know she wanted to be in Playboy, but she did not want to be naked. And so they covered her in pearls. And so she's naked, but she's not totally nude. And somehow that's still keeping with that modest portrayal of, like, you know, cis heteronormative sexuality. Even before they convinced her to wear the pearls, she kind of, like, threatened them. She was like, oh, I'll write you a check for double, like, what I was going to be paid and be done with it, which I think really, like, highlights that she has way more negotiating power than the average sex worker would. Kim definitely had power in this situation due to her wealth and the legality of the work she was doing, which um, contributed to her privilege to control her narrative. And most sex workers don't have this privilege, which was the case of Cindy Gladue. Act 2. Cindy Gladue. So Cindy Gladue was a sex worker from Edmonton who was murdered during a sexual transaction. And I want to point out that Cindy Gladue is not representative of the entire sex work industry, but keeping in mind that the treatment of Cindy is an example of several social phenomena, which we know to be true. We know that Indigenous women face much more violence than other demographics of women, and we know that within the sex work industry, workers often face violence, harassment, and unfortunately murder, which comes to light in this case specifically. In addition, Ms. Gladue was disrespected during her trial. For example, she was referred to as native prostitute 26 times rather than being called by her actual name. Yeah, and there are a lot of things happening that make it so that someone like Kim Kardashian can profit and someone like Cindy Gladue is specifically endangered. So, like, sex work laws in Canada really endanger sex workers, which take away control and negotiating power. Um, Specifically, like, the laws that make people unable to advertise makes it really hard to filter through clients to help protect sex workers and have them be able to communicate with each other. Um, And also, like, people were more willing to degrade um, Cindy Gladue posthumously because the kind of sex that was being talked about during the trial was potentially BDSM sex, which people are, you know, see as more deviant, like we were talking about before. Um, And because she was having sex for money in a non-monogamous relationship, people were very willing to degrade her for that and judge that decision, especially as a mom. Yeah, and I think there's also a big problem when it comes to sex work with people being very quick to assume that once sex workers consent to have sex for payment, they're consenting to everything. And that is just blatantly not the case, right? Like, you could consent to have sex and not consent to be choked. And so, particularly in the, like this case, as we're talking about a woman who was ultimately murdered while working, um, you know, maybe she did consent to have sex with the man who killed her. Maybe she did make a choice to do that. But she certainly did not make a choice to end up brutally murdered. Yeah, definitely. And her status as a racialized woman definitely affected this. Like I said, she was referred to as native approximately 26 times. And the judge even told the jury not to infer that the defendant was 
I quote, a person of bad character merely because he associated with a prostitute, end quote. Um, he said nothing to contradict racialized stereotypes about Indigenous people. And just to note, the jury was made up of two women and nine men. Most of them were white. I thought this was important to note because it makes it more likely that the jury would identify themselves with the defendant rather than Ms. Gladue. I think a big part of why people are uh, comfortable with making statements like this is because of really dominant controlling images that exist in Canada about Indigenous women, which really ties back in with Patricia Hill Collins and her theory of controlling images of black women. These really like box them in, don't allow them the agency to express themselves in any way that doesn't conform to support white supremacy. And you can see that really apply to indigenous women and the stereotypes that we have about indigenous women and in particular their sexuality. Yeah, and that idea of controlling images really applies in Canada because um, during colonization, in order to justify the rape of indigenous women, um, they created this colonial myth of uh, these hypersexualized indigenous women, and that image still really exists today and definitely worked against Cindy Gladue. Act 3. Compare Kim and Cindy. And I think just to kind of pull this back, um, to compare and contrast Kim and Cindy Gladue's cases, like, as a white person, Kim was just not systemically discriminated against, like, just fully not discriminated against. Um, like, and her skin is light, and she chooses to tan it and put on body makeup, like, sells a line of skin-darkening body makeup and has shown videos of her pale hands and then put on her body makeup and it's darker. Like, so this ability to kind of take on and off her race gives Kim, like, the power to kind of decide what amount of racialized she wants to be and when she wants to be it. And, like, and kind of all comes back to wealth because Kim has shown that she's able to kind of take on that controlling Jezebel image that Hill Collins talks about by darkening her skin and like mobilizing her sexuality but then is able to take that off to an extent and like can present herself on the show as a more complex character and she's only able to have the show because she was wealthy so she's really like the epitome of privilege mm-hmm and while Kim gets to also be portrayed as a good wife, a mom, a sister, all of this complexity was denied to Cindy in her court case as she only got to be known as a native prostitute, even though she herself was a mother and daughter sister as well. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. If you want to learn more about the experiences of Indigenous women from Indigenous women, you can look into the National Inquiry and report on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and check out the Moosehide campaign hashtags on Twitter and Instagram. The next episode is from the group members Alicia, Ezra, Tamara, and Wendy. Their episode on social justice focuses on the social services created by sex workers and gives an education on how sex work is being used as a tool in social justice.
Activism is the art of using the resources available to you to meet a political or social goal. I think that sex sells. Sex is always going to sell. Men are always going to buy nudes. People are not always going to buy cookies because it's to save the trees. That was Ryan Taylor, former underage survival sex worker turned hustler cover model and 2020 beaver of the year. Doing like survival sex work, like most people in survival sex work just had to like keep working my way up and working my way up with like the opportunities that sex work can present it like to the people in it. Eventually I just became well enough versed in what I was doing, uh, especially for like full service that I was able to work with photographers who had connections to people in publishing um, communities, met connections with Hustler and just kind of got introduced to people and nothing comes without hard work in this industry. I had to work my tush off to get there, but yeah, so now I am like a very well paid, like what would be considered a high-end escort as well as, you know, a published model and a cover girl. Very challenging road that is still full of ups and downs. Ryan has used her success to fuel her activism. Before, like, Instagram got real crazy on their, like, censorship of, like, sex workers. It was kind of when they just ignored us, Um, you know, kind of before the idea of, like, Instagram baddies or, you know, Instagram models was a thing. And so I had this large following, and I sold content off of it anyways, and, you know, through Twitter or various social media platforms. And it was, like, near my birthday, and I was working for this dog rescue, And I was like, I don't really, at the time I was like very high up financially. So I was like, I don't need any gifts. I don't like want gifts from men anyways, because they feel entitled to something once they gift you something. (laughs) And so I just kind of put out there and I was like, Hey, if you donate for my birthday to this rescue I work with, I'll send you like a nude in return. And like overnight, it was like, a thousand dollars was raised and I was telling people just donate like five ten dollars like not even a lot and it, it it just like took off and then I realized it was a really great way to use the privilege I had as like a hot girl so to say <laughs> yeah like that's something that like made me feel good it was like a way another way of me using my resources and my connections to help others also it, it like truly brings awareness to things because the people that are running these rescues generally are not having anything in common with sex workers. And so it was really nice to, to be able to be like, hey, not everyone in this like industry is just out for themselves. Like we do good. We want to help people. We're generally pretty compassionate. So, and it's like sex work's never going to go away. Men are always going to be paying for sex in some capacity. So if you're able to be doing more than like getting by on it, I think it's important to like utilize that money, especially because you can argue it goes into like redistribution of wealth from like wealthy white men absolutely because I mean I've like I have friends who I've like joined and others who have done it you know for women of color or sex workers of color you know trans people of color in the sex industry but I just happen I work with animals most so that just happens to be like my key that I like factoring that I go to but it's it, it is a way for us especially the very privileged sex workers to take our privilege in so many ways and like redistribute it to people who need it even more mm-hmm. and utilize our access to rich white men yes men will buy will spend the five dollars on a picture regardless they don't care where it's going to so it's like really easy to direct the money into the ways you want it to be used so i think it is more successful yeah it's a renewable resource for sure yeah like my nipples aren't going anywhere like <laughs> <laughs> 
Even though Ryan Taylor has done so much good with her Instagram, she still faces so much censorship. Four Instagram accounts have been deleted. I'm threatened weekly to have mine deleted. But yet there are people who steal my pictures and make false accounts of me that like those accounts don't get deleted somehow when I'm reporting that they're like not me. And it's wild because there are male photographers who post photos of what would be considered like against community guidelines like say on Instagram and it's considered art for them but me at the beach in a thong is like unacceptable and like social media is like that last like hey we're in this together like we really are and they're just like tearing it down they have no interest in us banding together you know band off craigslist when you could still post personals on craigslist i just like it's just so wild because even like you could make the argument so many times like escorting in the united states is not illegal escorting is a legal activity as long as there's you know no sexual acts exchanged for the money but they don't care they still are like nope hookers gotta go but then i watch porn stars again a legal activity and they fall under obviously sex work but they can advertise their escorting and meetups and like they're fine. So this like weird double standard again of like who's elite, who's charging enough, who makes it pretty enough. Oh, we'll allow that to happen. Uh, on its, Exotic Cancer is a great example. She is a dancer. She's a sex worker who makes art about sex work and her stuff is censored all the time. But then I watch these like male artists who are not in sex work post way more graphic, way more vulgar things. And it's not taken down. And I'm like, okay, but like, where's the line drawn? Oh, right. At literally being femme identifying or just not a cis man. Like I realistically, especially because now sex work has with social media and these like fake Instagram model girls, it seems cool. So like young, young girls are getting into it, not realizing they're going to like ruin their lives. Yeah. I mean, even on Twitter, obviously doesn't really delete accounts, but I'm shadow banned. I'm sure you're shadow banned on Twitter. Like if everyone is like shadow banned on Twitter. I actually just deleted my Twitter because it just wasn't worth it anymore. I used to post Mm -hmm. stuff and get like hundreds of likes and comments. And then now after FOSTA FESTA, I would post something and it would be like dead. Like maybe like your followers are not even being shown the content you're putting out. Mm hmm. Yeah. So it's like, what what do I do? Like, yeah. Um, I learned recently that changing your gender on social media to like male makes you less likely to be deleted. And I did it. Really working. I'm going to do that. (laughs) FOSTA SESTA. Stop enabling sex traffickers act and allow states and victims to fight online sex trafficking act are American bills that criminalize third-party hosting websites like Instagram and Twitter for, quote, facilitating prostitution and sex trafficking by letting sex workers use their site. This means sex workers are at a greater risk of losing their social media accounts. Sex workers have also lost advertising platforms and advice forums due to these laws. These platforms help reduce the risks inherent in sex work. This has led to countless deaths, violent assaults, and cases of homelessness as sex workers are less able to screen because of loss of screening platforms and forced to take bigger risks due to financial desperation. Many also lost housing as they were unable to make enough money to pay rent and other essential bills. I have, I am like flagged on dating apps, like whether I'm trying to use them for personal use or 
like a business within, I think the longest I've ever had an account on a dating app was um, Bumble left me up for six hours. (laughs) Yeah, I think I've been deleted from Tinder like six times now. And don't get me wrong, there have been plenty of times I just make new numbers, fake accounts, whatever. And there's plenty of times I am potentially using it because I have had success off of using those like hookup sites for like quick appointments, especially if you're like traveling in a city or touring and you've had a cancellation. It's really easy to like fill those spots with that. But all it takes is one guy being mad that you're charging and they report you and it's done. And you're like permanently banned and blocked. I'm banned from um, Venmo. Of course, and Venmo took my money, didn't give it back to me. Um, I've been locked out of my PayPal, which has my actual government name on it, but it was like associated with my Venmo account because it's all the same companies. You know, I've been like banned from, um, you know, banned off Craigslist when you could still post personals on Craigslist. I've just like, it's just, it's insane. Yet I watch men post literal pictures of their dick. Like, just dick in hand, weird, soft dick in hand all over the internet. And, like, I'm not allowed to be like, hey, I don't want to fuck you because I don't know you. Like, I have another question. Um, What's your reply to people who think sex work is inherently exploitative to women? So this is where it gets a little complicated. It is. But, like, life is exploitative of women, and we're never going to not be – children are sexually exploited when you see a little oh my god she's gonna be so pretty you have to keep the boys away from her like girls are just exploited from literally the moment they come out of the womb and so it's like of course it's exploitive we live in like you know such a capitalist era and like society like we have to do what we can do so you can call it exploitive but so is like being a secretary with a boss who like makes sexual innuendos all day at you. And the idea that like this exploitation is any different than I've worked in companies, like I've worked in skate shops before and it's a boys club and that's exploitive because they would tell me to, you know, go get the shoes for everyone because I would be like a girl in short shorts on a ladder. Like it's always exploitive when you're a woman. You can find Ryan on Instagram at heaven sent outlaw and Ryan Taylor is a virgin. If you'd like to support activists like Ryan, you can start by educating yourself on FOSTA-SESTA and advocating for the full decriminalization of sex work on all levels. You can also donate to sex work positive nonprofits. However, proceed with caution. Not all sex work oriented nonprofits actually help sex workers. Some perpetuate harm by conflating sex work and sex trafficking. It's this flawed logic that leads to dangerous legislation like FOSTA-SESTA. If you're unsure if a nonprofit is supportive or harmful to sex workers, email them and ask them to explain the difference between the two. Some fail-safe organizations are Swoop USA, Global Alliance Against Trafficking of Women, Peers Resource Society, Pace Resource Society, and SWANS. The next episode was created by Beth and Kate, who look at gender discrimination in women's sports, specifically representation in women's professional soccer. They explore the lack of positive social media coverage and how it affects mentality, image, and also the pay of the players.
Hello folks and welcome to our podcast on sports and gender. My name's Beth and my name is Kate and we're students at the University of Victoria who plan to tackle the issue of gender discrimination in women's sports in this podcast. This week we are going to discuss representation in women's professional soccer. Specifically, we are curious about how the lack of positive social media coverage and representation affects women's soccer players' mentality and their image as a professional athlete. We will also be speaking on how their pay is being affected. So, my initial thoughts on this topic are that it is 2020 and it's ridiculous that we are even having to have these conversations about such distinct gender discrimination. It's hard to be an athletic woman and not be recognised for your athletic ability or the potential that you have. It's disappointing that we must still fight for equal rights in the sports industry. As a fan and a follower of many sports teams, the talent pool is huge in women's sports. It sucks that they are unfortunately misrepresented and unfairly pushed to the back of media coverage, except for special events such as the Olympics. We have a few case studies for you that we're going to dive into. So, as a group of girls from the University of Victoria, we have all played sports at one point or another in our lives. What sparked our initial interest was the fact that in 2020, women still aren't given the same opportunities as men. They're discriminated against and made to feel that their sex will never let them be the athlete they could have been if they were a male. Whether that be through actual discriminatory acts or through the prioritization of men's over women's sports. It's still important for us to address this issue as we've all come into contact with gender discrimination sports due to media misrepresentation of female athletes. But we must also be able to understand this issue through an intersectional mindset. So what exactly is intersectionality, just in case some of our listeners don't know? Well, that's a great question, Beth. We are all shaped by the interaction of different social locations, such as our race, race, ethnicity, gender, class, sexuality, etc. To put it in simple terms, our individual identities intersect in ways that impact how someone is viewed, understood, and treated. Exactly. When considering the following case studies, it's important to consider all the factors and to explore the connections between these social systems. So, what's your experience with sports or media discrimination growing up? Um, I've come into contact with this behaviour before. I did gymnastics until I was 15, but I noticed a huge dropout of my friends from all kinds of sports around the age of 13 or 14. It seems very common. Why did they drop out then, do you know? For some girls, I guess it just wasn't their thing anymore, but a lot of people quit due to the lack of general interest and harsh comments and stereotypes. This comparison between boys and girls from sports start around age 10 or 11 and it becomes times for girls and guys to split apart and for them to have separate leagues. But not only this, as girls continue to play these sports, they get labelled as tomboys. This label is important because it highlights the the tendency of our society to put sports in a masculine spotlight. This puts an unfair label on girls as it assumes that anyone playing sports is more masculine. As kids age, female sports start to get less recognition than boys. Especially in high school, I remember that no one would attend the female finals, but for the guys, there was prep rallies and basically a whole celebration in hopes that they would win, but in reality, they like never did. This is a frequent reoccurrence across the globe. For those that stay in sports, the difficulties they face by being a woman in a male-dominated industry only get worse. Social media violates, persecutes, and abuses female soccer players daily. In the media, we see hundreds of videos go across our Twitter, Instagram feed every single day. But one video in particular that caught our attention was a video of Renee Hector. In this video, the young female soccer star Renee Hector discusses the ramifications of another soccer player yelling monkey sounds in her ear during a game. But Renee decided she was not going to allow for that racism to happen and decided to put out a tweet about the event. It's also important to note, and we must ask ourselves, if this would have happened to a white female, what would the outcome have been? 
This tweet in particular is a powerful example of how some of the comments made connect well to our overarching topic of gender discrimination in sports, giving a first-hand perspective into what female athletes face on a day-to-day -day basis. This tweet was published and Rene got a lot of online media attention very quickly. Rene says, So I decided to put a tweet out and little did I know it absolutely blew up. I can't believe the reaction that it got. For me personally, that's affected me for 10 months now and it's still ongoing. As a woman and as a woman of colour, Renee received comments targeting her race and gender specifically. If she hadn't been a female player, I don't know if a situation like this would have been handled like this. I also, as someone who played sports growing up all the way through to college now, I can totally agree with and understand why Renee put out this video. Yeah, no one wants to hear these comments everywhere, and unfortunately a lot of people think that these comments are okay to throw at athletes. So why are these comments considered okay when they are posted by social media users hiding behind anonymity? And how do these comments affect how players feel about their careers? Well, it was clear that Renee was super upset about this comment, as she should be, but it's unfortunate that these comments keep happening all the time. It's because that they keep happening that they've become normalised now. It's hard to believe that the girl who made the sounds did not know how this would affect Renee. This foreshadows all of the other reasons why women, and specifically women of colour, have a harder time in professional sports. The comment was supposed to make Renee feel lesser, and it obviously worked if she still think about this 10 months later. This incident obviously affected her mental health and should not be taken lightly. I'm curious as to how women in professional soccer feel as though racism and other comments are affecting their mental health. I'd expect that the figures would be sky high. Furthermore, the discrimination for athletes from the media has transitioned to a bigger stage now and it's also affecting their pay. A great example to represent how social media tears apart female athletes is the US women's soccer team. When talking about soccer as a male-dominated industry, the US women's soccer team comes to mind. The US women's soccer team is one of the best, if not the best, professional women's teams in the world and they've won countless titles including holding the FIFA World Cup record of winning four times, they've won four Olympic gold medals and the men have none. They are obviously a major news headliner after every win and more now than ever that they are in the spotlight. However, due to the lack of positive coverage, the women's team are now facing some harsh gender discrimination. Because they are female players, they are being viewed in an intersectional spotlight that is not fair to them or true representation of their abilities as professional athletes. The women's team is ranked number one in the world, yet they are paid at a rate of just over one-third of what the men get. Yeah, and actually the US women's team is now taking legal action and suing the USSF for gender discrimination in their pay and accomplishment bonuses. One spokeswoman from the women's team stated that, in every instance, for a friendly or competitive match, the women players were offered less pay than their male counterparts. This is the very definition of gender discrimination, and of course the players rejected it. Many of the arguments about why women get paid less is because men produce more money and create more entertainment for audiences. But it seems unlikely that this is the only reason and that decades of misogyny is not the reason for this pay gap. Things are so bad that even Megan Rapinoe has spoken out. Megan was a FIFA Player of the Year in 2019 and she used this platform to publicly call for gender equality in all sports. Rapinoe stated that if everybody was outraged about equal pay or the lack thereof or the lack of investment in women's games other than just women, this would not be happening. Hi, my name is Alexa and I will be interviewing Julia Grosso, who is a player for the Canadian Women's National Team. I met Julia when I was 14 years old and I knew that she'd be the perfect person to interview about media scrutiny on female soccer athletes. The first question I asked her was, how do you feel media coverage represents women's soccer? She replied, I feel like it has gotten better throughout the years. We have great media staff working with us and making sure people can watch our games, etc. They do a good job advertising it as well. Although I do think it can still get better, 
but it has definitely improved from before. The second question I asked her was, do you feel that media coverage impacts yourself, your teammates, or the sport? She replied, yeah, there's definitely a gap between men and women's soccer. Firstly, the difference in pay has been an ongoing issue with men getting paid a lot more than women playing at the same level. The last and final question I asked her was, do you feel as though you are treated differently than men in a similar level of soccer? I feel like it has gotten better at times. It feels like men's sports are definitely getting more attention and it feels like women's sports are less valuable. Majority of the time, you will see men's advertisements posted everywhere and it feels like women's sports come second. I was fortunate enough to also conduct an interview with a UVic athlete. I asked her, have you ever been in a situation where you have been treated differently than male counterparts in your sport? She replied, obviously every female in a competitive sport will be treated differently than males. I believe the bias around it in my sport is a lot of the time pretty brutal, which I believe isn't true. And for a head coach to say that to your face, it's pretty frustrating. So yes. The second question I asked her was, do you feel like there's a significant difference in the funding that your team receives in comparison to the men's team? She replied, the team at UVic isn't very good, but all the other male teams get way more funding than us, which is frustrating when your team has won back-to-back championships for the school and you aren't rewarded in any, in any way financially. The next question I asked was, if so, does this scrutiny affect your mental health? Has it ever made you question your reasons for playing the game? She replied, I wouldn't say it affects my mental health, but it definitely makes you question where your morals lie in the school you're playing and representing. It makes you feel not appreciated. And yeah, you question, am I really here to just sit back and watch other teams who aren't as good as yours get bigger change rooms and more scholarship money when we are fighting so hard for the school and winning? The final question I asked was, has there been any specific instances where media has affected your outlook or affected you emotionally? She replied, I think when a post is put out there into the public and you feel like you should be recognized more than the other person that is being recognized, it's definitely hard. I know my team struggled this year with how little the media posted our winning team and we felt they were posting things that just weren't as important. Especially in field hockey, the sport is dying and we want to keep it alive and get our sport and our women's team out there for, pu- for the public to know about and hopefully receive more funding. Thank you both Tessa and Julia for taking the time out of your busy schedules to talk with us about this important issue. We wish you the best of luck moving forward. The pay gap has become more evident in recent years, even amongst professional players. This pay gap is a further example of how intersectionality is taking effect. These players, being women, are facing an unfair prejudice that they are somehow less deserving of equal pay than their male co-workers. Within this intersectionality, there are also reports to prove that women of colour are paid even less in this field than their white teammates. Yeah, as we mentioned earlier, the women's soccer team has taken legal action to fight for equal pay. Equal pay is important for all jobs because without equal pay, it's hard to afford some basic necessities. It is even more difficult to be a mother and play for the top professional women's soccer team in the league. One player, Sydney LaRue, spoke out about the hardships that she faces while trying to raise kids and being underpaid. She admitted that she spent more money on babysitting and nannies for her children than she made last year playing for the Orlando Pride in the National Women's Soccer League. This is a significant factor as more funding from private clubs and teams is being paid to players than from the USSF, which is one of the largest soccer organizations behind FIFA in the world. Clearly, they must have more funding than a private club does to pay their players. They're trying to increase the women's pay and childcare, etc. for professional athletes. So far, however, no progress has been made as players have not yet accepted a deal. 
How do you folks feel about this? I mean, I can't believe that it's still 2020 and this is happening. There definitely should be better care for children and understanding that women should be able to play a professional sport without worrying about how they're going to pay for their child. Pay discrepancies are also highly noticeable in the players' bonuses. Basically, to put things into simple terms, if the women's team wins the World Cup, they were promised a bonus, and so was the men's team. So somehow the men's team, who are not even ranked in the top 20 worldwide, are viewed as more deserving of a bonus than the women? Yes, and the women, to be quite frank, got screwed over with their bonus. The men, who have never won and didn't even qualify for the last World Cup, were promised 1.1 million each if they won. Each? Yep, and guess how much the women got paid? 250,000 each in bonus money for their win. This represents that men are worth over 750,000 more dollars than women. Isn't that outrageous? Can you believe that? That is ridiculous to me. <laughs> this just goes to further show the negative effects of social media representation on our perception of these players. The issue of gender pay in sports is a very current issue. Just this week, actually, Norway declared equal pay for both their men's and women's national soccer teams. If the women's soccer pay in Europe is now doubling to be the same as the men's pay, why can't the same thing be replicated in North American teams? This is a huge step not only for Norway, but for all teams and athletes. If Norway has equal pay, then why can't the United States? After analysing all of these different media examples, it's clear that discrimination and scrutiny affects how women think about sports. Hopefully the US will stop to think similarly to Norway and the gender pay gap will begin to shrink. Moving forward, there's a lot that we can do to hopefully raise awareness around this issue and to change stereotypes, such as using the power of social media to your benefit to help shed some light on this topic. Don't you think that people would be more inclined to watch women's sports if they were treated more equally to men's? The clear gap in priority shows the audience which teams are more worthy of watching. Or honestly, just doing something as simple as going out to support your local female sports teams, even here at university, helps to make a huge impact on these players and their mentality. Well, thank you for tuning into our podcast this week. And let us know in the comments what you think of this issue. Like, subscribe, and leave a comment below. Bye! <laughs>
Hi, I'm Ava. Hey, I'm Tammy. And today we'll be looking at how police violence in Canada is targeted towards Black, Indigenous, and people of color through the case of Pierre Coriolan. This mistreatment and violence can be compounded for those with mental illnesses or for people of other genders. Pierre Coriolan was a 58-year-old Black man in Montreal. He lived with a mental illness that his neighbors knew about. One night he was having an episode and police were called. Multiple officers entered his home, then shot him with a taser, rubber bullets, then live bullets, thereby killing him. So we invited a few people from different backgrounds and lived experiences to talk about police brutality, racial injustice, and this is what they had to say. Um, my name is KP Dennis. I'm an Afro-Caribbean, trans, non-binary artist and activist. Uh, my name is Musa Magasa. I work here at this university for the last 13 years as a human rights educator or a human rights education advisor and also as an associate faculty in the social justice program and uh, an instructor in the intercultural studies and practice. My name's Jess. I'm studying political science and environmental studies at the University of Victoria. I'm graduating this year and that's it. My name is Chamendra Virovardhana and I come from Sri Lanka and I'm an international gender and social justice activist and uh, so racial justice, what I would say intersectional justice is at the core of my work and I'm also an academic and a PhD in international politics and I engage with academic lobbies in the area of feminist IR and also politics of deeply divided places. That's impressive. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Um, just for reference, BIPOC means Black Indigenous People of Color. So how would you describe Canada's reputation internationally in the media? I think Canada has this reputation, and maybe that reputation's changing now, at least I hope so, but has this reputation for like being inclusive and multicultural and like kind and open. The question reminds me the word brand Canada. So Brand Canada is all about promoting feminism, supporting women's movements, worldwide supporting uh, LGBT rights movements and other forms of rights movements and presenting Canada as this wonderful land that stands for the rights of marginalized people and that is a great advocate of human rights and as also a kind of a dream destination. So marketing the image of Canada as a dream destination to the world is a big part of brand Canada and that is what the Canadian foreign affairs do. Canada has a very like demure, chill, like nicest, kindest people in the world kind of reputation. Do you agree with this reputation? No, <laughs> not at all. Um, I can see how like the politeness quote unquote is construed as like kindness quote unquote because um, everyone's very like nice to your face and really just horrible behind closed doors versus like America, everyone's just mean to your face or like England, people are very upfront. Canadians keep everything closed down, which kind of shows in their history too, of how they try to just like suppress the history and it's like keep it quiet and no one knows about it, it's very hush hush. It is a very uh, problematic kind of image to begin with because it's very paradoxical. So considering the reality of the treatment of BIPOC in Canada, what does the word multicultural really mean to you? Do I agree that Canada is a peaceful nation? No. Do I agree that Canada is a multicultural country or nation? I will say uh, uh, the jury is out for debate. 
and uh, nothing is conclusive because it depends where you look at it. For minorities like myself, we have trouble to really think about the concept of multiculturalism when you know that everyone is normal except us. We are visible minorities. Robin Maynard has a book. It's called Placing Black Lives. And so what I think about when I think of this question is she has a chapter. It's called The Black Side of the Mosaic. It's about how like Canada brings this like multicultural lens on itself and says that like we're a multicultural country. We let people in. Da 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 da. But then it's like actually really showing the anti-blackness of multiculturalism and how multiculturalism isn't actually like a real thing in Canada. It's actually a bunch of bullshit, right? It's like a how would you put it? Like a mask that's like covering up the fact that there's so much racism and it says like you can come to Canada and you can keep some of your values but not all of them and also really unpacks like how multiculturalism in Canada throughout history has not included black people do you think Canada has an issue of disproportionate violence against black indigenous and people of color the disproportionate levels of violence you see that mostly when it comes to indigenous people people in high politics in canada justin trudeau downwards are starting to affirm this on very influential platforms so that is there out there to see however when it comes to the other part second part of your question about black and ethnic minority people there's an awful lot of issues but those issues are very often brushed under the carpet uh and covered by the positive brand canada image that we discussed earlier so for example the case of pierre coriolan in montreal the case of a black trans woman who was incarcerated for four years in a men's prison her name is mocha dawkins and then there's a case of a young boy called ariel kuaku in montreal he disappeared about two years ago not a single trace like he just disappears vanishes into thin air so what does that say so there is a considerable level of violence very sinister kind of violence because when you see a threat you can do something about it when you don't see a threat and when it is right there what are you going to do people are told to trust the police white people are grown and raised to trust police. I'm in this class and all these white girls are like, what would we do without the police? They keep people safe, but they forget when they're saying that when women of color call the police, like when they're sexually assaulted, they also get sexually assaulted by the police officers. The police don't help women of color. They perpetuate that violence. So when we talk about the comparison between the United States and Canada, do you feel like the social climate of police brutality is similar or more intensified in the United States? Do you think they're all that different? I will say there is there is quite a bit of difference uh, that difference though might be dependent on the media and how the media report we know that there is police brutality in Canada but often time it doesn't come across in the media like in the US we like to say here in Canada our police don't kill like they do in the US i don't agree one shooting of a black kid is enough we don't need 10 yes one is enough tell us that there is too many and in Canada those have happened the profiling of our kids the profiling of black people driving a bm as a black all those things we know is canadian and it is clearly embedded in the system and it is racist media itself is built to like support the state and state institutions and the people who are reporters and who run media stations the majority of them 
who are reporting on particular things are perhaps white. And so when you have that growing up and you've never had to question the police and you've grown up to trust the police, and then when you're reporting on police issues, you're inherently going to trust the police first. That coverage is going to reflect that. If you don't see yourself represented in the media, you represent it positively in the movies or on TV. You don't never see or hear about yourself in the media in a positive light. You can imagine the consequences because people internalize those yeah. negative stereotypes and they grow up with. And when it is thrown to their face, they think that this is the status quo. They will just walk away instead of addressing it because they never been able to be exposed to something positive. Most of us, we just, we are jaded. Microaggression, for example, we are just jaded and tied to the point that, uh, you know, we just snub it and walk away feeling like there is no point to pick a fight. When it comes to the case of Pierre Corillon, do you think gender played a role? Do you think the outcomes would have been different if it was a black woman? The automatic assumption that not only police but white folks in general is that black people are threats to the state. We're threats not only to the state though, we're threats to them. We're associated with being criminals. We're associated with violence. All those old stereotypes you think were gone keep play. So then like when those things are in play and this case happens, their only solution in their head, I don't know, in academia it's called the white imagination, right? And it's like the way white people frame black people in their brains of black people being criminal and being violent is like more important than black people's lives. Gender certainly plays a role in the sense that when you look at the legacy of violence against black people, when you look at the lynchings in the American South during the days of the transatlantic slave trade, for instance, inflicting violence on black masculinity was a major priority to sustain that violent system of repression. So on one side, you have that targeted violence, specifically targeted black men and at the same time you have even more critical level of violence that targets black women. Gynecology as a discipline for instance was developed with medical experimentations carried out on black women's bodies without any anesthesia. It's a discipline built on an awful lot of violence. People like seem to just not really care about black women and the violence they face and like they're actually incarcerated and killed by the police more than black men but it's never talked about which is tragic but that's it. They just don't care about women so it's easier to get away with too and easier for them to go missing and the police don't care they don't look it just gives them more and more excuse and more power and more deniability and then less sympathy for the victims and the public as well to just be able to get away with it and in the reports it does mention that he was suffering from mental health issues that had a play in the way he was treated well if someone suffers with mental health issues they need mental health support they don't need to be murdered they don't need to be uh, restrained by using excessive levels of violence. But unfortunately, there is no record of a mental health worker. The fact that he had a mental health issue has been used to justify disproportionate levels of police violence against one unarmed man. Whose responsibility do you think is to make substantial systematic change? Where does this change begin? Oftentimes, people like us, we find ourselves doing the education. But I don't think that responsibility should just be ours. The responsibility should be shared not only by the individuals, but also by the institution. And most importantly, by a government that pretend or proclaim that multiculturalism and equity and human rights is its core values. However, oftentimes, when you talk about racism, people run straight to systemic racism. But the moment you pull the cut of systemic racism, no one is responsible anymore. Racism is not 
not only done by the system. The everyday racism and dignities is done by individuals. Let's get the system and the government to do something, but don't let the individual to get off the hook because they are the one you meet at the store. Uh, in institutions like UVIC or organizations like this, they always want to talk about systemic racism and let's blame a power bigger than us. For me, that's a danger because it helps those people who translate and hold that power, that work for that power to say, it's not my fault. I think BIPOC have been doing this forever and I don't know like we can't call the police in so many situations and when it comes to mental health when it comes to something like this case with Pierre I think that there's so many different ways you can handle it. Sarah Hunt writes this article and it's about the everyday and like creating community care and mutual aid in these ways where we don't need police forces. So while there's resistance movements, at the same time, in the everyday, we can be making the police obsolete. And so ways that we do that and handle these situations without police are really like entrenching community care. What does that look like? I don't know, it looks different across communities and no one community can have the same community care. But in this case, that involves like everybody knowing about how to handle mental mental health situations and creating like space for care and space for love and so part of that is deconstructing stigma and then creating that space for care. We started this podcast thinking about Pierre Coriolan's case. We're skeptical of Canada's friendly multicultural reputation. We went into our community and discovered that others felt the same. The people we interviewed seemed to agree with us about Canada's multicultural reputation. As Charmendra put it, Brand Canada. All the people interviewed also agreed that the reputation is not true. There seems to be consensus that the media plays a large role in creating Canada's reputation. Media outlets filter and choose what stories they want to cover, whose voices are most important, and who gets to be heard. As we heard in our interview, BIPOC voices are often silenced. BIPOC continue to be murdered by police, and people continue to ignore it or not believe it. There seems to be beneficiaries, but BIPOC are not those people. However, if we've learned anything from this, it's that BIPOC have fostered solidarity between one another. This podcast wasn't intended to find out any clear answers on how to solve racism. It was created to start an important but often ignored discussion within the university. We wanted to reach out to community leaders and give them an opportunity to share their wisdom. Unfortunately, we had to interrupt the interviews due to the outbreak of COVID-19 and the restrictions that followed. Fortunately, every interview we managed to record before social isolation began was powerful. Once the current tense situation is contained here in Canada, we intend to continue our forays into better understanding contemporary challenges of racial justice in Canada. Racial justice work is happening every day all around us. We are resilient and we are fighting back. We hope that this podcast will contribute to racial justice activist work that is already happening every day. This podcast is dedicated to the memory of Pierre Coriolan. And that is it for season three of Taking Up Space. This episode was produced by me, Sarah Solomon, with help from Coco Nielsen and Chase Joint, and of course, the class of Gender 200.